0: Here we go. You need some courage today? Uh, Through God's word, you're going to get it. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts gathered here, may it be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Back in the 1950s, you know, way back when it was still hip to run cruel experiments on kids— Those were the days, right? Um, There was uh, one woman, Ruth Berenda, who ran a group of experiments on kids, and she published the results of her study under the name of of this uh, title, The Influence of the Group on the Judgments of Children. The Influence of the Group on the Judgments of Children. And in that study, a simple experiment was conducted. It it wasn't actually very cruel for the 50s. It was actually pretty calm. Um, But what they did was they gathered a group of kids in a classroom, And uh, grabbed a whole, you know, different age groups, a group of kids in a classroom, and they showed them a card with three lines like this. Three lines of various lengths, each of them numbered. And then they turned over another card on the left with a single unmarked line. And the experiment was pretty simple. They said, all right, students, which line on the right, which of these numbered lines on the right is the same size as the numbered line on the left? That was the question. Uh, in fact, let's try this out right now so you can uh, demonstrate whether or not you would pass this test. So which of these three lines is the same length as the number or as, as the line over here? Uh, which of these numbered lines is the same as the line over here on the left? One, two, or three? Three. Okay, good. Um, you know, the kids, Gay, got it right too. 94% of the participants in the study got it right. Because what they said is they said, you know, write, write your answers down. And they all wrote them down like a pop quiz. They turned in their sheets at the end. 94% of the participants got it right on a series of lines, and uh, the 6% who didn't get it right, they immediately sent them to get their eyes checked, because this is way too easy. Everyone should get this, right? Just kidding about that last part. You'll never laugh at my jokes. You have a terrible sense of humor. It's okay, Um, unless you just make peace with that fact. So then they ran the study again. So they got the same group of kids. They showed them the same lines, but they changed a few things, so they brought the kids back into the room, and they said, okay, we're going to do the same thing we did before. We're going to show you some lines, and show you another line. But instead of writing down your answers on a piece of paper, you're going to have to stand up and give your answer in front of all of your peers here in the classroom. So they changed it up a little bit. Oh, but, but then they did one other thing. They, uh, they actually, before they did the second round of experiments, they gathered a majority of the students together secretly, and they told them, that when they were to stand up and give their answer, they told them on a number of these uh, line experiments to give the wrong answer, to lie. So like on this one, they would say, we know the answer is number three, but we all want you to say number one. So they pulled a a majority of the students in, they told them to say the wrong answer, and then they had them go first. So you can imagine how the experiment went the second time. The the kids show up into the classroom, they say, we're going to do this a little differently, and student after student stands up, and instead of saying line three, they say number one. Number one, you know, they throw a couple in there who are going to say number two, and a couple will say number three, but the majority of the students all say number one. So for those students who weren't in on the secret, those students who were, who were actually the study participants, what do you think happened to them? I mean, 94% of them got it right before. What do you think happened as they began to have, hear their peers say the wrong number? Yeah, it dramatically decreased their accuracy. What they found was less than 50% of the students got the answer right. So, so instantly, you know, going from paper to verbally, the students got twice as dumb. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> all because they heard other people giving the answer. Why, why is this true? Why, why would this work out this way? Well, you know, I think we all just kind of know this intuitively. Science just showed us what we all know. That it is scary to go against the crowd even when you know better. In this study um, that we're beginning today, by the way, you should have gotten a new Growing Deeper on the way in for this series. This is a message study. We intend for you to use this experience on Sunday mornings as a catalyst throughout your week. And so we give you 15 minutes that you can spend with God every day and study. So you can grab a paper copy of this on the way out if you didn't get one on the way in. It's also available for download on our website and you can get them sent to you in email. But we, we encourage you to do this. This is not meant to stand alone Sunday mornings. Uh, But we're beginning a new series today on the book of Judges. It's called Encourage, because we want to help you be more courageous with uh, things in your life, you know, like even this experiment we talked about. And to do this, we're going to look at five of the best-known judges in the book of Judges. Because these are people who've got quirks and shortcomings and all kinds of failures, and some of them are are doubters, and some of them are cowards, and yet God uses them to act encouraging. And we just kind of hope that through all of this, that you leave this place for the next five weeks feeling more courageous about whatever it is that you're facing in life. And so today we're going to kick off this series with a guy by the name of Ehud. A guy by the name of Ehud, who is one of these people in the book of the Bible called Judges. Uh, He is one of the judges, and literally that word judge, if you're picturing someone right now in black robes with a gavel, um, that's not it. The word judge is actually kind of a poor translation. It it, it would actually be more accurate if it was translated rescuer, or savior, or deliverer. Just to give you a little bit of context about what these people did, uh, you might have known that um, the Israelites, God's people, that they lived for a few hundred years in slavery in Egypt. And uh, and then Moses came and he rescued them from slavery. He brought them across the Red Sea, so they were free. And then he took them into the wilderness where they were going to spend a short amount of time before they went to their home, the promised land. Uh, But that short amount of time in the wilderness took a lot longer than expected because the Israelites were not good at following instructions. Does anyone remember how long they had to stay in the wilderness? Forty years. Yeah, so it should have taken a couple— a couple months maybe, it took 40 years. So a couple hundred years in slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, finally the Israelites get to move into their home, the promised land. And you know how this works, like when you move into a new home, you're just so excited to get there, that, uh, that you, you, you maybe even in a home inspection heard some things that you should probably take care of. You know, the gutters are too full, and you should clean those out. And this place could use some caulk here and there. And, and you know, you, you should you should look after all of these other things. The roof's a little mushy in this one spot. Make sure you take a look at it in the next few years. And you're kind of like, yeah, 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 just let me get in. Let me get settled. And then all those instructions go by the wayside, right? And then two years later, you've got water in your basement, and you're like, ah, I should have listened. Tell me that's not happened to you Of course it has, you know, to all of us. We put things off that are important. The Israelites, they were sent finally into the promised land, but they were sent in by God with some pretty wild instructions. Maybe even hard for us to believe. God's instructions to them uh, was basically this. He said, you're going to go into the land, and it's going to be your new homeland, but I want you to drive out everyone who's currently living there. I want you to either annihilate them or force them out of the land. Wait a minute. God said that? For some of us, that's, that's kind of hard to believe, and some of you might even tune out right now because you go, this is the stuff that I just don't get about this whole Bible Christianity stuff. Why would God tell people to annihilate or drive out their neighbors? Isn't he a God of love? And, and, and I get it. I mean, this is, this is confusing stuff, and yet here's a couple things that I'll just point out to you. Uh, for starters, this is really a one-time unique set of circumstances. God doesn't go around doing this all the time. If anyone cites judges as their excuse for doing something crazy now, don't believe them. I mean, God is doing something unique at one point in history. He's basically trying to carve out a piece of land in the middle of the inhabited world. And he's trying to put a population of people there who will live for him and who will be his people and who will reflect his love. And and in order to do that, in order to create the space, he's got to get firm but the other thing you need to keep in mind is that these neighbors of the Israelites, they weren't like your neighbors. I mean, if you're picturing these nice, kind, minivan-driving soccer moms and dads, or if you're, visiting, or if you're visualizing that, uh, that uh, elderly couple down the street who has a really nice yard, you know, they spend all their time gardening, and they're the envy of the neighborhood, you've got the wrong picture of these neighbors. These neighbors were not good people. They, they were murderers. They did horrible things to each other. They were thieves, they oppressed women, they did awful things to children, and in some of their religious um, rituals, some of their acts of worship, they would sacrifice their own children to their gods. I mean, these were not good people. So I know this command from God seems a little weird for us, but, but it was a different set of circumstances, a very unique point in time. And God basically says, okay, Israel, this is what you have to do. But, but, but Israel, they heard God's instructions, and either they were just tired after all this wilderness wandering, and they They said, we'll get to it later. Maybe they were feeling merciful. They didn't do what God said. And as a result, they find themselves constantly being ensnared in false worship. And they constantly find themselves being overtaken by foreign armies. And that's where this guy Ehud comes in. So the book of Judges is this this, uh, cycle of the people finding themselves in a bad situation because they didn't do what God told them to do. And then God raises up, a judge to help them. So Ehud comes in, Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 12. You can look in your Bible, or on the YouVersion app, on your smartphone, or you can look right up here as we work through this text together. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because of this, because they did evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, a city that we know as of, of as Jericho, which is one of the first cities that Israel actually took possession of when they came into the promised land. Now it's in the hands of the enemy. It says the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So this begins this pattern that we're going to see over and over throughout the book of Judges for the next five weeks, this pattern of the Judges, where Israel does evil. They don't do what God says. They get involved in false worship. They, they, uh, they, they start to get involved in the stuff that their neighbors are doing. And, uh, and so as a result, natural consequence, they find themselves being put under political oppression. Some foreign, foreign army comes in and takes over. And it's painful for them. And they live with the pain for a little while. And eventually it gets so bad that they get humble enough that they cry out to God for mercy. I mean, we do the same thing, right? We don't listen to God. We find ourselves in pain. Uh, or we just find ourselves in pain, Period. And, uh, and we don't cry out for help until it gets really, really bad, and finally we'll ask for help. This is what the Israelites did, so they'd finally cry out to God, and then God would raise up for them a judge, a deliverer, a rescuer. So that's what happens next. So again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, a judge, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Just curious, how many of you in here are left-handed? You can raise your left hand even, if you want to, yeah, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a good, there's a handful of you. Uh, yeah, I'm in a house full of left-handed people. Um, he, there's some biblical irony going on here that we might not see. So Ehud is this left-handed guy, which is kind of rare. But here's the irony. He's from this tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin literally in Hebrew means son of my right hand. <laughs> so, so you get this, right? You got this left-handed man who's living in a tribe full of right-handed people. He, he's kind of an oddball. He doesn't, he doesn't fit in. Uh, this left-handed man living in a right-handed tribe, um, he's going to be a little odd. He's, he's not going to be um, like everyone else. We, we, we hear that right away just in this, this short uh, sentence. But, but here's something also that we're going to find out about Ehud. Um, we're going to find out about him in a minute, that, that he had actually had aspirations to be a warrior. But in ancient, ancient civilizations, if you didn't know how to fight with your right hand, you couldn't be taken seriously as a warrior. I mean, everyone knew that you had to fight with your right hand, and you defend with your left, and and they had no tolerance for people who would do it the other way around. And so not only was Ehud probably a little odd, a little different, this left-handed guy in a right-handed tribe, but he would never be taken seriously as a warrior, because, you know, even today, Southpaws, you Southpaws, you just can't be taken very seriously when it comes to sports or combat or anything else, right? No, seriously, wasn't there a time in our nation even not too long ago when that was true? Some of you maybe grew up in those days where if you were left-handed and you showed up trying to hold a pencil in your left hand or cut with scissors in your left hand, the teacher would come and smack your hand and turn it over to your right. Anyone? Anyone grew up in those days? Yeah, and the rest of you are lying about your age, some of you. It's okay. Um, Yeah, there was serious pressure, and even if you never experienced that pressure, we all know the pressure that's out there to conform, whether it's to our peers who tell us how we should act or dress or talk. I'm not thinking just about teenagers, although that applies to them, but it also applies to all of us. I mean, we all feel that pressure to, to be who our friends want us to be or or who society wants us to be. We feel that pressure to fit into what society says is successful or beautiful or good. Or, or we feel that pressure by our government to be good citizens the way the government defines it. So that's why we pay our taxes. We don't want to be bad citizens. Who likes to pay taxes? No one, but maybe a few, maybe I guess. But we, we do it because... We want to be good citizens. Oh, and we don't want to go to jail, but there's, you know, a good citizen thing too. We do even what uh, guys like me say. I mean, why why should you come and listen to a guy like me? Some of you are asking yourself that question right now. You're like, that is a good question. I've never thought about that. Isn't it true that that we also are curious and we want to conform to what, what religion says about what it means to be a good person? We find ourselves all throughout life conforming and here's what happens, there's a lot of pressure to conform, and so often we say, you know what, I'm just, it's, it's not worth my effort to try to push back, and, and I don't want to deal with all the friction, and, and all of the difficulty of, of being different or standing out, so I'll, I'll just fit in, because it's easier. But here's, here's what will happen. Uh, as you start to give in to the pressure around you to blindly conform, you'll find yourself growing more insecure. See, see, we think conformity is going to help us feel better about ourselves, but conformity breeds insecurity, not courage. And so by conforming blindly to what people want us to do, we, we actually don't feel better about ourselves. We actually feel more insecure and less courageous. We become more dependent on the opinions of others in order to feel good about ourselves. But, but that wasn't Ehud. Ehud was just a different kind of guy. And so even though he was this left-handed guy in a right-handed tribe, even though he wanted to be a warrior and warriors couldn't be left-handed, somewhere along the way, Ehud just says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to stand out rather than trying to fit in. And I think because Ehud does that, because he has the courage not to conform in small things, that's why God selects him to use him for something really big that'll, that'll be for the benefit of all of Israel. So let's, let's read on what happens next. Uh, then the Israelites sent him, sent Ehud, with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So, so Ehud becomes the guy who's actually carrying tribute to, to this foreign king. You know how this works in the movies, if you've seen Star Wars or anything like that. I mean, when a foreign king is is oppressing you, you've got to pay him off so he doesn't beat you up too bad. And so Ehud becomes this courier who takes tribute to the king, and maybe his left-handedness even had something to do with it. He's a left-handed guy, so he can't be a threat to anyone. So he's selected, and he gains the trust of Eglon, king of Moab. He's the guy who delivers the loot to him. Watch what happens next. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. So you start to realize that Ehud's not who everyone thinks. He he makes a double-edged sword about a cubit long. I have no idea how long a cubit is. Um, Someone told me it's like, Forty-five centimeters. I don't know how long that is either. Um, so, uh, but it couldn't be too long because this is what he does, uh, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So, so here's where Ehud begins to leverage his difference. So, if you're if you're a warrior and you're right-handed, because all warriors are right-handed, um, you would conceal your weapon not in your hip holster like we do it out here in the county, but you would con- you would. Con- you'd uh, you'd conceal your weapon on the inside of your thigh under your tunic so that you could quickly draw your weapon and use it before someone used their weapon on you. So right-handed warriors hide their weapons on their left thigh so they can draw it quickly. Ehud's not a right-handed guy. And so presumably, because this is way back before, you know, TSA got hypervigilant and is keeping us all safe, um, presumably Ehud goes into the presence of the king and they may even search him, but where are they looking? They're looking at his left thigh because, again no left-handed people are warriors, and so no one hides a weapon on their right thigh, because you can't draw it that way. You'll, you know, so so Ehud begins to leverage this difference. He he, he makes this sword, he straps it to the inside of his right thigh, and he hides it under his clothing. Uh, He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was, now I just got to tell you, (laughs) this Narrative. The reason you didn't learn it in Sunday school probably is because it's a little gruesome, and it's just a little crass. And, uh, and yet, God chose to write this down. I have this written down for us. Um, Ehud is even mentioned as a hero of faith in the book of Hebrews, where we get all this, this list of all these great heroes of the faith. So he's worth studying, but it is a little crass. It's a little gruesome. It's kind of potty humor in some places. And, and, uh, and so, you know what? If you don't like this today, Talk to God about it after the service. I'm not taking any emails, because this is in the Bible. This is not me, okay? So he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Again, save it for God. After Ehud, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who carried it, uh, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. Now, hold on a second. So, so Ehud's got this entourage of people who's, who are carrying all the tribute. So they're, they're paying this king a lot of money and goods in order for him not to beat up on them. They're, you know, they're paying off the bully. And so he sends back all of this entourage. They kind of get to these boundary markers. That's what the stone images are all about. They're probably the boundary markers of, of Eglon's territory. Statues of himself, maybe, or or their gods. And so he sends his people back into Israelite territory, but he stays in Moabite territory. He says, you guys go home. I got to go back for something. And so he goes back and he says to the king, he says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his attendants, because this is the the weak left-handed guy who brings him tribute. The king said to his attendants, okay, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Told you it's gross. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. (laughs) Um... Again, I could never get away with just saying this stuff. I mean, like, this is crazy. So, so then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors in the upper room behind him, and he locked them. So so basically, I mean, this left-handed guy, this left-handed weak guy who should not be feared by anyone, harmless as a little fly, uh, this left-handed guy has successfully assassinated the king of Moab, who is holding all of Israel in, a, in oppression. He kills him. There he is dead in this upper room. Ehud locks the doors, he escapes out to the terrace, and he's on his way. And presumably, um, because Eglon, that that whole thing about his bowels discharging, presumably because that happens, the guards misread what is going on inside of the room. So look at what happens next. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the upper room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. So here these guys are, they're waiting and they're waiting. They're like, the king is using the bathroom. And they're, they're just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And, uh, and no one wants to go first, of course, because no one wants to be in there for that. So they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall to the floor, dead. Yeah. So um, again, this, this left-handed guy this left-handed warrior that no one would expect, um, has not only killed their king, but he left them all standing outside. He's outsmarted all of them. While he, they all were waiting out there, Ehud had long gotten away, and he passed the stone images, so he got out of Moab land back into Israel, and he escaped to Sarah. Uh, when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet. That's, that's the sound for warfare, you know, like, hey, summoning all the warriors. So, so here again, this left-handed guy, who can be taken seriously by anyone as a warrior, he's now blowing the trumpet and he's calling these guys to war. So he blows the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them, this left-handed warrior. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him. They followed him down and they took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. So, so uh, then Ehud, this, he's, he's a tactical guy too. He leads them to this place on the border near the fords of the River Jordan where they can't easily cross over. And so they get this strong position. They, they kind of build a stronghold because all of the Moabite people, they're back trying to figure out what to do. Their king is dead. They're scrambling. Israel's got the advantage of time, they're there positioned for military battle, and they allow no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong fighting men. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Do you remember at the beginning of this, how long was Eglon, the king of Moab, how long was he oppressing Israel? It was 18 years. It's kind of interesting. He was, he was over them for 18 years, but here's this great reversal. Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. All because this left-handed guy had the courage to be different. Now, some of you still don't understand why on earth we shared this Bible story with you today. You're like, what, what is the point of all of this? I, I think the point for us today can be rather simple. I think the point is that God could use a few more nonconformists in the world. You know, if we would just stop trying to fit in all the time, if we would stop trying to be like everyone else, if we would stop trying to hide our God-given differences, if we stop feeling bad about how we are different, the ways that maybe we're a little odd, our unconventional methods of getting things done, I I think God could use that. And we see it out in the world. I mean, we see that nonconformists are the people who are the innovators and they change how things get done and, and they revolutionize things and they bring new products to market. I mean, you think about people like Henry Ford or Steve Jobs and, and people who changed the world because they were nonconformists, but how much more could God use people who have the courage to stand out? I mean, Ehud, he he had the courage just to be different. To say, you know what? I'm going to be a warrior who fights with my left hand. Call me crazy, but I can't really control this, and and this is who God has made me to be. And God used him. See, I think there's something powerful about nonconformity. And I I hope this story encourages you, this narrative. It's true. And God wrote it down for some reason. I I hope it encourages you to think about that, to say, you know, there's something powerful about nonconformity. So the next time you're feeling the pressure from your friends, or you're feeling... Uh, pressure from your coworkers, or, or you're just feeling that, that vague societal pressure that's, that's telling you who to be and how to act and, and what to look like and what to do, that, that you have the courage to push back and say, ah, not so fast. God can use people who are nonconformists. God can use people who have the courage, who demonstrate the courage to stand out. And when, and when you demonstrate the courage to stand out in small things, God can then grow that courage and use that courage for much bigger things. See, there's something powerful about nonconformity. Even as a church, I mean, this is something that we've embraced. And and some of you, you know, you struggle with that. And you just go, why? And some other people in our denomination, they struggle with that. And they say, why why don't you just be conventional like everyone else? And we say, because there's something powerful about nonconformity. God can use that. God can use people who have the courage to be different. And he might even entrust them with things that no one else has the courage to do. But I also have to warn you here today. I mean nonconformity is a good thing. You learn that from Ehud, but I have to warn you about something. If you are a Christ follower, be careful. Uh, if you're a Christ follower, be very careful about this whole nonconformity thing. Don't take it too far. And here's what I mean, there's some Bible verses that speak about conformity and nonconformity. First Peter is one of them. Peter says, "As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So, so, so Peter here is both saying, you know what? Be obedient, children. Be conformist. But be nonconformist as it relates to all the evil desires that you once had when you were kind of living like everyone else. So, so be a nonconformist. And yet at the same time, he says, but just as the one who called you is holy, be holy. So he says, you know what? Even while you're being a nonconformist, you've got to find a way to conform to the one who has called you, the one who is holy, try to be like him. Romans 12 says this. It says, "Do not conform to be a nonconformist when it comes to the pattern of this world, but at the same time, if you follow Christ, be transformed by the renewing of your mind." then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So so Romans says, you know what, it's not just about being a nonconformist and saying, I'm not going to go along with the crowd, I'm not going to be like the world. Romans says, as you're not conforming to the patterns of this world, allow yourself to be transformed to be like God. Even clearer in Romans 8. Take a look at this. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's saying that before the beginning of time, God knew you, and his desire and his plan for your life was not only to save you, but his desire and plan for your life was to actually conform you to to make you look like Jesus. Why? So that he, Jesus, might be only the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God doesn't want Jesus to be an only child. God the Father doesn't want Jesus to be the only one in the world who stands up for justice and goodness, the one who lives in purity and truth, the one who, who shows radical love. God the Father is actually looking for all of us to become more like Jesus, to, to look like him, to be conformed to his image and likeness, so that we may be the first, so that we may be brothers and sisters of Jesus, who is the firstborn. So which is it, Dion, right? Be nonconformist or be conformist. The answer is both. I mean, you need, to know, you need to know today that Jesus, he loves you exactly the way you are. You don't have to be a different person in order to, to get the love of God in your life. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. You know, whoever you are today Whatever's going on in your life, God loves you completely and fully. He loves you with a furious love that we sing about earlier in the service. You you can't change that. You don't have the power within yourself, within your being, with who you are or how you act, to change God's affection for you. You don't. And yet at the same time, at the same time, I hope you know as you sit here today that God loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you where you are today. There are probably sins in your lives that, that God is, is trying to get you to turn away from because they're destructive to you and to people around you. He, he's hoping that you will take next steps on your life journey and you won't stay put where you are today so that you can discover more about his wholeness and his fullness that he has in mind for you. He, he, he's hoping that you will no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that you'll begin to think and act and live differently wait a minute, which is it? Does Jesus love me the way I am, or does Jesus want me to change? It's both, isn't it? There's nothing you can do that can change his love for you, and yet at the same time, he he desperately wants you to change for your own good. See, some of you are sitting here today, and you actually think that there's something in your life, there's, there's something in your past, or even in your present, and you think that disqualifies you from the love of God, and you're wrong. You're wrong about that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We sang about that today, too. And you just thought we were picking songs because we liked the way they sounded. Right? I I hope you know that. That nothing in your past, nothing in your present can make God disqualify you from his love. I mean, he's not in the business of that. And yet, at the same time, some of you are sitting here today, and you know that's true, but you've got very you 've gotten very comfortable with things in your life that are out of conformity with god 's truth you 've gotten comfortable with sin and brokenness and, and you just sort of like you know it's okay, God loves me no, I mean yes, but no God desires to see you turn from that sin he desires you to be transformed he desires you to begin to look more like Jesus and all that Jesus was and all that Jesus stands for. He desires to see you change. Why? Because you're not good enough? No, 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 because he loves you so much that he wants you to experience the joy of being the person he created you to be. Both of those things are true. So when it comes to this issue of conformity or non-conformity, if you follow Christ, the, the thing that we should aspire to is this. I've summed it up this way. We should aspire to the courage to stand against the crowd and the courage to stand with what's true. That truly, as Christ-following people, we aspire to both of these things. The courage to stand against the crowd because the crowd is wrong most of the time. And the crowd is headed in the wrong way. And the crowd is telling you that life will be fun if you live it this way, but they're lying to you. In fact, it looks fun on the outside, but in the inside, there's pain and death and consequence that, that, that is just so awful that God wants to spare you from that. It's the courage to stand against the crowd. That's what I'm asking for. That's what God wants for you. To no longer be told who you need to be or how you need to act by people who have no clue. But it's not just the courage to stand against the crowd. I mean, we know people like that. People who just, whatever the crowd does, they'll do the opposite. It doesn't matter. They'll just do the opposite. Even when the crowd is right, they'll do the opposite. So you end up with dudes who wear makeup and women who wear none, and and it's all in the sake of, like, being a rugged individualist. You're like, what is that? What's the good of that? That's not what God wants for you. See, God wants you to have the courage to stand against the crowd, but the courage to stand with what's true. It's both of those things. And I'm going to tell you, to to do that, you probably figured out from life, to do that, it takes a lot of courage. It takes the courage of simply embracing who God's made you to be. It takes the courage of understanding that, that God can use you even though you're different. It takes the courage to look inside of yourself and to say, you know what, there are some things in my life that are out of conformity with what God says is best for me. And even though I don't understand it and I don't see how this could be true, I'm going to be courageous enough to try life God's way and see if maybe he's wiser than I am. See, see that's, a, that's an amazing amount of courage. But here's the trick to it, I think. And I think this is where Ehud can be helpful to us. I, I think the key to this is to start small. You know, start with being okay with being a left-handed person in a right-handed tribe. Begin to have courage to stand against the crowd, but to stand with what's true in small things. And God will grow that courage in you and enable you to stand against the crowd and with what's true in big things and things that matter and things that mean rescue and salvation for people all around you. That's what I want to ask for from God today. So um, we've already done our singing. Today we're going to close off with prayer and then we're going to send you. So please rise as we pray. Father God, we confess that so much of our life is out of conformity with who Jesus is. And so God, right now we we admit that. That we are more content to follow the crowd and to be like them than to be like Jesus. And and Father, we know that's wrong. And sometimes it's our hard-headedness, but sometimes it's our fear that keeps us going the way of the world rather than the way of Jesus, that keeps us following the crowd rather than standing with Jesus who is the truth. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness today. Forgive us for those things that we do, those things that are done out of weakness and those things that are done intentionally, knowingly, deliberately. Forgive us for all of those things and remind us again today, Father, that our actions, bad or good, that they don't change your heart for us, They don't change your love for us. They don't change your hopes and dreams for our lives. Help us remember that you're a loving Father who gave your Son so that we could be yours, so that we don't stand in guilt or fear or shame anymore. And and then, Father, I ask that you would give us courage to stand against the crowd and to stand with the truth. Give us courage to be who you've made us to be, to, to be who Jesus is calling us to be, and to do that without apology, to do that courageously. God, God this week, I pray that you give us small tests of courage that are, that, are, that are just at the right level so that we can pass them, so that our courage can grow and we can grow in our sense of who you made us to be and who you're calling us to be instead of who the world says we should be. And God, I pray most of all that you'd give us your Holy Spirit so that every step of our lives, as we, as we take steps closer to being the people you have created us to be, that we will grow in courage and that we will be useful for you to do things in this world that will result in the salvation of many. Just like you used Ehud, this left-handed guy, to save Israel. Use us to save those who are perishing in our generation. Give us courage. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior, who gave everything for us. It's in his mighty name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.